Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're walking through uh, the Gospel of Mark here in this uh, season of Epiphany, where it marks the appearing of Jesus Christ, the glory of God, and going out to the nations then. We celebrate today the baptism of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we're going to also be starting a series, or beginning a series on the Gospel according to Mark. As, as we celebrate this day, we're, we're going to be preparing the way for God and Jesus Christ as we walk with Him through the Gospel of Mark. We're like Him, we are called to prepare the way of our Lord. With that in mind, I, I invite you to join me with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Word, which is living and active, as it is read, as it is preached as it is received, open our ears and soften our hearts that we might be easily transformed, conformed to the image of your dear Son from one degree of glory to the next. These things we pray in your sovereign name. Amen. Now, when you look at the Gospel of Mark, you notice pretty quickly he's just jumping in straight away. And he's telling the story of Jesus' victory without much in the way of pauses. Or long explanations, he jumps in straight away. He says, verse 1 of chapter 1, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the beginning, <clears throat> Genesis 1, verse 1, it's almost like Mark's getting our attention here. Hey, there was a creation story, and I'm telling a new one, is what Mark is saying. Mark begins Jesus' story by speaking of a new beginning, a new creation. So the story he's telling is, in fact, an old, old story, but it's told afresh and glorified. Each word of the first verse is loaded with historical context. So we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We just as well be reading something like this. In the beginning, which was at, at the creation, at this new creation, in the victorious Good news of Jesus, that is, a new Joshua, the anointed one, the Christ, who is God's mighty king. It's loaded, isn't it? A lot going on there. The gospel. It really is, the gospel means that there is an announcement, and it's an announcement of victory. When we hear the word or say the word gospel, think always in terms of announcing a victory. And Mark, in announcing the victory of this Jesus Christ, he's calling upon servants of old, God's spokesmen from old. So he calls on Isaiah and Malachi. In the beginning, he says, of my new telling of this story, I want old stories to be told through the voice of old prophets in order that we might prepare the way as they prepared the way. Verses 2 and 3, he quotes, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. What's this passage about? The beginning of this new story. It's about preparing the way for the coming of a king. Preparing the way. That's what we are to come to glean from this passage. In verse 2, although Mark attributes Isaiah to, to both quotations here. The verse Mark, of Mark chapter 1, verse 2 is actually from the prophet Malachi. He gives us a whisper of the final breath in our Old Testament scriptures, though Mark changes it just a little bit. Malachi, when he writes, 
he's, he's about, talks about sending a messenger, and he ends with, who prepare my way. There's a different pronoun used there. God himself is going to be coming. And so Malachi is telling the people of Israel, prepare the way for God to come. And Mark has written it, prepare your way. Who is the your there? It must be referring to the subject of verse 1, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So as Mark straight away tells the story, it's all about Jesus' victory. He begins by identifying Jesus Christ as the one who is to come in Malachi 3, who is God himself. Good news is the announcement of victory that God himself comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And like Isaiah of old, there will be a voice given to cry out in the wilderness. And that voice is one who exhorts, and he exhorts God's people, saying, prepare the way. The Lord's coming. The Lord's appearing. Prepare the way for him. Now, when Isaiah was writing, he was writing to those people of God who were taken out of their land or who would be one day taken out of the land and who would then be coming back. And as they are planning to return, as they are hoping to return to the land, the voice that uh, Isaiah prophesies says, prepare the way because God is going with you. He's going to go before you. And once again, he will establish his house, his temple, and your whole lives will orient, will center upon that home and that God. But Mark, in quoting Isaiah is stating that the Lord will go with His people to a new exile, coming through with them into a new wilderness. He's saying, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord. And Mark straight away gets into the business of, at hand here, right? Verse 4, John, just like that, here he goes. John appeared, right? He really does, doesn't he? He just appears on the scene. John appeared, baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Mark is saying, look, there's a voice exhorting us. Prepare the way. How? Through repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, the backdrop to John's voice, to John's message, is the exodus. There's a new exodus in Mark's retelling of the old, old story. Here we have an exodus with all the country of, of Judea and Jerusalem. They're, they're, they're doing what? They're going out. Now, to our ears, that should be a bit alarming. This is the land promised to Abraham and his descendants. This is the land where God will establish his house and, and the nations will be drawn to it. And we have here at first, the very first breath of this story is that the people are leaving it. They are exiting. It's almost as if Judea and Jerusalem have become a new Egypt from which God's people must flee bondage of tyrannical rulers, the bondage of idolatrous priests and unclean people. God's people are departing the land. They're going across that boundary water. They're going across the Jordan River which means that they are doing what? They are entering the wilderness where they hear this voice, the voice that echoes Isaiah's word centuries before, the voice of God's messenger who was John, who was preaching in the wilderness. Not only preaching, though, we find John baptizing waters, 
let's jump back because he's telling a new story. He begins with creation, and there's a new creation here. So we remember at creation, the second day of creation, what God does is he separates the waters above from the waters below. And the images, in order to ascend to God's presence, the waters would have to, to part, and we would have to ascend through them. We would have to pass through the waters. In order to get to God, heavens must be opened. In fact, tabernacle and temple, no one could enter into God's presence without first passing through the water, right? A big old basin of water is out front of both tabernacle and temple, and they must be washed before they could even think about entering into God's presence. They must be washed or baptized in the laver, the holy sea. Since the days of creation, it's always been about passing through the waters as a necessity to enter God's presence. Mark is retelling this creation story. He's talking about entrance to God's presence from temple and tabernacle, but must first pass through the waters. Remember Moses, when he was leading from, uh, his people, God's people from, from, from bondage in Egypt to worship the God Almighty? They passed through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea. And the old way, the Egyptian way, was literally put to death so that in the wilderness, the other side of the judgment waters, you find life. It was breathed forth by His Spirit, the glory cloud by day and a holy fire by night. So, after Moses comes Joshua. Moses ends in the wilderness, but he's preparing the way the whole time for Joshua to come, to pass through the waters of the Jordan River in order to go into the land and conquer. Again, God's people have to pass through the waters to establish the right worship of God, to dwell in His presence The waters for Joshua were the Jordan waters, the Jordan River. A new people on the other side of the Jordan were created. The old way was put to death. The new life forming a new people in God's spirit were established. So Mark is picturing here, just in the first few verses, he's picturing this history afresh. A people are fleeing bondage, not of Egypt anymore, but of Judea and of Jerusalem. That's a new Egypt, and they're fleeing that. A new Exodus story is being told where the people go to John out in the wilderness. A John, a type of Moses, is preparing the way for Joshua. But a new Joshua, Jesus Christ, who will also pass through the Jordan River in order to conquer the land. Of course, John comes preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is always the, the approach to God, isn't it? Always and ever the way, people fly to John from a people of unclean lips amidst a people who are sinful, adulterous, and unbelieving people. So they first pass through the waters into exile and wilderness, wandering first. And in so doing, in going out to the wilderness, what they are doing, they are acknowledging their participation in the rebellion and the wickedness of a people. And in so crossing that Jordan River and going to John, It is an act of repentance, of seeking a new way. And the forgiveness isn't just for this person or that person. There's a corporate nature to what's happening here. There is a new way to be led by the one who will forgive. There is one who will cleanse. There is one who will save and renew. There is one who will go before. There is one who will soon undergo a baptism of his own in solidarity with his sinful, broken people. And that's in part why we as God's people 
who follow Jesus make a regular habit of confessing our sins, of repenting of the sins we, con- we commit personally, individually, for we're all accountable to God. So we enter rhythms of confessing our sins individually, but also as God's people. We have our corporate confession of sin where we confess our sin. And in so doing, we're acknowledging not only do I sin individually, but I share, I participate in the sins of those who follow Jesus. I participate in the sins of those around me, seeking together forgiveness, seeking renewal in the image of Christ more clearly. Yes, individually we are guilty of participating in the sins of God's people. There is none who are righteous. No, not one, the Scriptures tell us. We share in sin's guilt its shame as one people. We share in that guilt and that shame together, but we also share in the cleansing work of Christ together. We share in His forgiveness, His renewal, and His refreshing. Now, these first few verses tell the story of baptism as a a ritual symbolizing allegiance to a new way, a new order of things, a new creation beginning with a new people. Those coming to John, they're casting off the old flesh of Judaism for the new life in Jesus Christ. And they're called by the voice in the wilderness. They are led by John, who is God's new Elijah. Moses and then Joshua. And now Mark draws our attention to another prophet of old, Elijah, verse 6 and following. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is a new Elijah. John is following in the footsteps of a mighty, a mighty prophet, not only the one that Isaiah foretold, but he's following the footsteps of Elijah, taking on his message, his manner, his dress, and even his diet. And he, John, like Elijah, is preparing the way for one who is mightier than him. Prepare the way. That's the message of Elijah. That's the message of John. That's exactly what Elijah does, isn't it? He's preparing the way for God's people to return to faithfulness and fidelity to God. What does Elijah do? But he defeats the false prophets of Baal. He defeats a wicked queen. Elijah meets with God and hears from God. Elijah even raises a dead widow's son, for a widow's dead son, and then he was fed in the wilderness. He is mighty indeed. Few prophets can compare to the might and majesty with which Elijah worked. And all the while, what he was doing, Elijah was continually preparing the way for God's word to go forth in mighty ways. Mightier than his own ways. He was preparing the way for another prophet to rise up and conquer. He he was preparing the way for the prophet Elisha. Elijah goes from the land, exile himself through the Jordan waters into the wilderness. And with him he takes a new prophet, which is, who is Elisha. And it is on this side of the Jordan and the wilderness where, where the, a double portion of the Spirit is given to Elisha, and Elijah ascends. Elisha then 
passes through the waters of judgment, through the Jordan waters once again, and he goes to lead a new conquest in the land. He announces victory. He announces gospel words that God will be victorious and he conquers. So what we have here, keep that picture in mind. What we have here at the beginning of Mark's gospel is we have John in Elijah garb, who's preparing the way for a new Elisha, a new Elisha who will pass through the Jordan waters of judgment in order to conquer the land, not just Judea, Jerusalem, but the whole earth. But first, before that conquering, this new Elisha must pass through the waters of judgment. We too, who share in the ministry of God's prophets, who herald the good news of Jesus' victory, were called to prepare the way for a conquering Elisha. Prepare the way for a conquering Christ. Now, our diets and our choice of clothing will indeed, I think, look much different than John's. Our geography and our audience will be radically different, and yet our message is the same. Prepare the way, the King is coming, and He comes. Prepare the way so that we who are baptized into Christ, we belong to Him. And so we begin by preparing our own hearts, minds, our lives to meet with Him. We who believe that the King comes, do we meet with Him ourselves? Are we willing to serve Him in whatever capacity He might call us to serve, and whatever He might call us to be and to do? Preparing the way is a lot about removing obstacles. For many of us, it's removing the obstacles of pride and arrogance. Indeed, humility must mark the church. The way forward in the church is bold confidence expressed in humility. Because our confidence is not in our abilities, but it is in the work, the finished work of Christ. Our confidence is in His victory. So we remove obstacles by modeling as best we can Christ-like hospitality, which is difficult in this strange time, isn't it? But yet we are resolute in obedience. We are patient with those who differ from us. We have severe mercy for those who rebel. And we have loving warning for those who ignore the coming of our King. Prepare the way for Christ because He is mightier, says John. He is mightier. He goes before us to conquer, to win victory for the glory of His name. As Jesus enters the waters of judgment, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descending on Him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Mark's telling of the beginning of Jesus' story really should indicate to us that what He's doing in this baptism is, is new creation work. The image here of baptism is new creation work. Access to the living God is granted as, as the waters of, of creation are, are, are parted. They're separated. In the same way the Red Sea and the Jordan were, were, were parted, now the heavens themselves are parted so that we might dwell with God. And as we imagine, our imaginations are fired up here, as we imagine what it is that, that God would come in His Spirit, descending in bodily form to dwell 
and to anoint his own son, Jesus Christ, the spirit descends to dwell upon him. The image that Mark gives us is that Jesus is passing through the waters of judgment and he is anointed with God's Holy Spirit. That Christ, who is the anointed one himself, he comes up out of the water and the spirit is poured out upon him, commissioned as God's anointed one, God's Christ, the Messiah, to serve him. Speaking of baptism, we can think later on, this isn't the only time Jesus talks about baptism. Later, he'll talk about baptism with his disciples and speaking to Peter, asking, are you all able to undergo the baptism with which I'm about to undergo? You know what he's speaking of in there, that baptism. It's his crucifixion. It's his death. That's what I mean that the baptismal waters are a passing through the judgment waters, the waters of judgment. And what happens is when Jesus passes through the waters of judgment and he comes to the other side, he is raised up, the Spirit is poured out, and he is vindicated. Likewise, we who are baptized in the waters of Christ's baptism, as we pass through the waters of judgment, we are not seen as vindicated for our own lives or own works, but we are seen justified, righteous, vindicated only in the person of God's dear Son, Jesus Christ. As baptized followers of Jesus, we have a share in that same spirit that Christ had a share in upon his baptism. And this is why Paul describes baptism as, as a being buried with Christ in a baptism like his, in order that we might be raised in newness of life with him. So here, at the very beginning of the gospel story, Jesus is vindicated for who he is and the work that he is about to do. He has to pass through the waters of judgment. And as he stands on the other side, he hears the voice affirming, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So as we think about the baptism here, though we couldn't see it, it's almost like the roof of the church is removed. The heavens are parted and the Spirit of God descends and the voice says of Reese, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is affirmed here as God's beloved son. It's a royal title, which is shared with the likes of King David. The son sang about this, the son that is sung about in Psalm 2, who will be established upon God's throne to rule in might and to judge in grace. This quotation makes clear that Jesus is this son. God takes great pleasure in his son. He says, in whom all my delight is here, and this is my son. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And, and Jesus extends that to us when he says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, our mission, our identity, our purpose is rooted in God's unmerited favor upon us because we are united to his beloved son. Now, it's hard to wrestle with that. It's hard to grasp the fact that God could look upon us and say, I find much delight in you. I find much pleasure in you. But the good news of Jesus' victory says that God looks upon us as we pass through the waters of judgment in Jesus Christ, looks down upon us and says, with you, with you, my son, with you, my daughter, with you, my child, I am well pleased. 
And that is an infinite pleasure. We have here the story of Jesus' baptism and by extension the story of our baptisms as well. Jesus goes before us and he passes through the waters of judgment so that we who identify with him arrive safely on the other shore in him before whom we can dwell the presence of our holy God. Jesus, in taking on flesh, becoming fully God, fully man, He associates with us entirely. In passing through the waters of judgment and baptism, we are vindicated in Christ, who shows solidarity with us by passing through the waters of judgment first, by passing through waters of judgment on our behalf. And with Him, then, we have a share in the Spirit that descended upon Him there. And then, His work, His reign, His grace, His mercy, and His love. We become sharers, partakers of that ministry. So Jesus, His life, He would have been faithful to the law of Moses. This would not have been the first time Jesus was baptized or washed. He would have followed these baptismal rituals, the the washings that the law prescribed. And yet in John's baptism here, we see Jesus is commissioned as the anointed one that Jesus is affirmed as God's eternal king, that Jesus becomes partaker of God's infinite pleasure in his spirit. So for us, at our baptisms and throughout our baptismal life, as we are washed in his name, we too share in these benefits that we might grow in them over a lifetime, exhibiting them, enjoying them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Passing through the waters of judgment identifies us with the one who identifies with us as well, in whom we bow before or turn from all of our lives. So as we wind down this passage, I just want us to think about a few pictures for us. Picture first, the humility of Christ in undergoing baptism. The humility of Christ in sharing these baptismal Waters, he who from all eternity has no need of cleansing will be washed in the baptismal waters. He who is elevated to be judge and ruler over all submits himself to judgment and is yet vindicated. He who in so coming to the baptismal water associates with us entirely. There is a solidarity with Christ and His people which is not ever to be shaken, even though we are a fallen and a fickle people. There is an infinite humility in Christ passing through the baptismal waters that we might share in His infinite glory. Picture the humility of Christ in these baptismal waters and and picture this, your own beauty and worth in Him. In Christ, you are God's beloved. So many things seek to identify us, to name us. But here we see we belong to Christ. He goes before us. Indeed, we have been bought with a price, and we belong to Him. When fears assail, when darkness presses in, when helplessness and despair threaten, you are Christ's. God looks upon you in Christ, and he says, you are mine. This is my beloved. And lastly, in preparing the way, we must be willing 
to count the cost as we preach Christ. Preparing the way, we must acknowledge that, that the call to share the life of, to preach the life of Jesus Christ, is the call to share in Christ's suffering. I've no doubt that the next 10 to 20 years will mark increased difficulty for Christians, not only in our country, but throughout the world. And costly choices will have to be made. And yet we rest in the singular task that we are but, like John, we are but heralds of good news, preparing the way for our king to expand his kingdom to the four corners of the earth. Our task, our commission, is simply to herald that good news from generation to generation. So in moments as we pass to depart from this place here, this gathered place, we depart in his peace, declaring with our life and our lips Prepare the way, for the king has come. Prepare the way, for the king is coming. Make straight the paths, for he comes in his glory, and he will make all things new. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. And pray at this time, as we have heard your word, that you would strengthen us in it, that we might serve you gladly all the days of our lives. We pray your blessing upon us as your people now and always. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.